Thanks, Mike, and good morning, and add just my own welcome. If you're, if you're new with us, if you're fresh trying us out, then uh, that's brilliant. Oh, so, so good to be with you. I, I, um, I was really sorry, maybe you felt the same, that we interrupted that amazing time of worship we were having for me to, to step up. I kind of feel bad about it because I just know the Lord uh, has already started something. So I just want to, if I may, it's not easy to do, but I just want to take us keep us in that moment we had at the very end of that sung worship. So the phrase in my, in my mind, and I'm coming to it towards the end of what I'm going to share, the phrase in my mind is that God's glory is revealed in the dirt. God's glory is revealed in the dirt of life. And I, I just, uh, I nearly, and I, I just kick myself so the Lord will make it okay, I'm sure. Well, he'll maybe kick me. Um, I just so nearly came up and gave you the end of what I'm going to say uh, as Mike was speaking, just almost at that point. And so I'm slightly regretting. But I wonder if, if the Lord in his grace, the Holy Spirit might just... So the, the glory of God is revealed in the dirt. You remember when uh, they were going to stone that woman, when the... the religious leaders had gathered around, the, the righteous, the self-righteous had gathered around and they were going to stone that woman as a, as a prostitute. And, and Jesus, you know, reaches down and he writes in the dirt and they, they gradually melt away, the crowd melts away as he says, who would, who would throw the first stone? Anyone who's not, not committed a sin. Anyone who's clean, anyone who's pure, you, you throw the first stone and they just melt away. And God's glory, the purity, the glory when we get to it, really is speaking about an unearthly purity. The purity, the holiness of our God is revealed in the dirt. And I, I just know there's some of us, maybe every single one of us, that we know, we know something of the, of, the, of the dirt that is in life, something of the grit. We know something of the, of the shame, if we're honest, of a woman who might have been caught genuinely in prostitution or adultery, the woman who, who she has done. But we all know, we all sense something of that truth within us, that dirt within us. We all, we all have bits of our lives that we really would rather not expose to full glory glare and God's glory is revealed in the dirt and we've been singing about God's glory this morning and his purity and so maybe I am now going to need to say some things to, you know maybe God wants me to say some things out of the passage today just to kind of connect with that he'll have purpose in it but I I kind of wish I just had come up at that moment and just said who knows that they need to realise even more that God's glory is revealed in the dirt of life, the reality of life. And his, his purity, his glory about which we've been singing is the, the purity and the holiness of God that washes completely clean. And God's love for every single one of us makes new. Okay, well, let's get back to there in a moment. 
I pray, I pray it won't be a long moment. Let's get back to there. Maybe, maybe I hope that God's got some stuff. If you just want to sit and look at the stained glass window behind me and the cross behind me for the next few minutes of your life while you hold on that truth, please have every permission to do that. And I apologise just for getting in the way if I do for a moment about what God wants to do because the revealed glory in the dirt. Anyway, one of my favourite films, Back to the Future. Anyone like Back to the Future? Yeah, Back to the Future films. Great film. Okay, so there's a space-time paradox, isn't there, that they're worried about. If you've never seen Back to the Future, so in a DeLorean car, which travels more than a DeLorean car has ever travelled in its life before or since, although I guess they're worth quite a lot of money if you happen to have one, if you're too young to know what I'm talking about, don't worry. But basically, Marty travels backwards and forwards in time, and he messes up time, and he corrects time, and things gradually make sense because of the ability to move through time. And the whole time, they're worried about Doc in it, the mad professor, is worried about a space-time paradox, when you kind of run into yourself if you're moving through time. And here's the scene of when Jennifer runs into Jennifer. The young Jennifer runs into the old, you know, the previous Jennifer. It does your head in, doesn't it? And I love, I love Back to the Future films because it, it just sort of, it, it just messes with the whole idea about where should a story start and where should a story finish. You know, in, in the day that, that our Bibles were, were first written down in the New Testament part of our Bibles, it was very common for, for Greek and Roman authors. They could freely rewrite material. It was nothing uh, thought odd if they organised material around particular ways. They didn't necessarily start at the beginning and work their way through to a neat end. And that is so true to our lives, isn't it? Do you have a neat story? Do you have a neat story? I do not have a neat story. You know, how many times have I said to God, how the heck did I end up here? In fact, you know what? God has said that more times to me than I've said it. Andrew, how the heck did you end up here? I've said it before, I'll say it again. When I grew up in a lovely, more conservative tradition, I used to think that life as a Christian was a tightrope, very narrow. I took seriously when the Bible talks about the narrow way. I used to think that the Christian life was kind of tightrope walking and if I dropped off, if I fell off, if I messed up, if some of that dirt that is in the reality of my life expressed itself, I used to think that God was standing on the tightrope saying, Andrew, I'd love to help you. But until you get back on the rope, I can't. That's what I used to think. That was me taking all of Scripture really seriously, but that was me doing a, a worldly kind of way of thinking about it. That was me interpreting the nature of God's glory in an Andrew Blythe kind of way, because God doesn't work like that. God meets us in the, in the mess, in the dirt, in the reality of lives, and he says, Okay, I wouldn't have started here, but now we're here. Follow me, walk with me, and it will be the best. I've said it before, church, it's still true. With God, there's no plan B. If you kind of feel in any sense like a, like a woman who's brought out in adultery, men, you can apply this to yourselves as well. Don't worry, do the maths, you'll cope. If you in any way feel like you're brought out in front of the crowd and rightly have your mistakes exposed to public ridicule. And if you think 
that people might be justified in picking up a stone and throwing it at you, I want you this morning to hear that life is not like a tightrope. God does not say, I'd love to help you, but I can't. God does not say, I'm sorry, your story is still messed up. There's a space-time paradox, which means that I, God, can't help you. God says, yes, I can help you. And he writes in the dirt. And the accusers melt away because there's only one judge. He's called God. He's pure. That's his glory. And he says, I love you perfectly and completely. My love washes you clean. And we're not talking, you know, Omo or Ajax or any of those things that I don't know about because I'm useless with washing machines, which is a really poor excuse, but it's the truth. We're talking about the love of God. Do you know that love of God this morning? Do you sense that love of God for you? Do you sense my words that the glory of God is revealed in the dirt of our lives? But back to what I was meant to be saying. You see, Mark doesn't organise his story that we've been following through as we're walking through in a neat kind of, uh, sorry, in a thematic way. He actually does it in quite a neat way. He does try and follow through the story. Here's a quick summary of where we've been walking and where we are walking. It's, it's all about geography for Mark. You've got the beginning of Mark's gospel as we we're sharing around Jesus' baptism. Then you have his ministry in the Galilee area. And then, and then you have Mark going out with the disciples on little apostolic journeys, little mission journeys. And they heal and they cast out evil. The pure glory of God seen in the dirt of life. And then there comes a decisive point where they turn and they walk towards Jerusalem and to the cross. And then you have the events in and around Jerusalem for the cross. And right the way through, just let's put this icon picture up, right the way through, the question that Mark is asking is about the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? And you, you can divide Mark's gospel up, not only geographically, but you can divide it up into two halves. The first half where there's a kind of growing speculation and a tension in the air. Who is this man? He's a penniless carpenter from a nowhere place. And yet he's doing these amazing miracles and he's doing these healings. Who is he? And then the second half, as they travel towards Jerusalem, he's being revealed to them fully as the son of man. That's the title he gives himself and the the turning point comes, many of us will know, at the end of chapter 8, when Jesus deliberately says to his disciples, what are people saying about me? Who are they saying that I am? And there's speculation. Some are saying you're Elijah. Some are saying you're, yeah, there's speculation. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. And at that exact moment, they turn towards Jerusalem and the cross. And this is what, this is what happens, what we're reading today. Let's put it on the screens. The transfiguration, it's called. This is this top of the mountain event that we're going to just quickly look at and I want to then 
used to say something about the glory of the glory of God in the dirt. There are Bibles at the front, or switch them on if you want to. Mark chapter 9, straight after this revelation moment. You are the Christ. This is what, this is what happens. Let's, let's follow it through. Six days later, it's a little, little word form in, in the Greek that tells you that this event connects with the previous event of Peter saying, who do you say I am? Jesus took Peter, James and John. Notice, quick aside, Jesus had a close inner circle. He had an accountability group. Have to say this particularly to the men because we're a lot, usually in general, we're not as good as the women in this. But if there's any man here trying to walk the Christian life, if you're trying to walk through the dirt and reality of life on your own, you are almost bound to struggle and fail, in my experience. I'd love to talk to you if you're stronger than a lot of other men that I've ever come across or read about. I'd love to talk to you. I think the reality is that if you're not in some kind of accountability relationship, particularly as a man, but I know it applies to women, forgive me, I'm not trying to make a gender point, then you will struggle and you're likely to fail. So Jesus had an accountability group, Peter, James and John. He led them up a high mountain to be alone. Uh, Also, by the way, if you don't ever spend time alone, you'll struggle. Jesus needed to. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed. And his clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them. Then Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Jesus. Peter exclaimed, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. He said this because he didn't really know what else to say, for they were all terrified. Now, you remember Gareth at the beginning of our series told us that Peter is very probably the source of Mark's material. So Peter has told Mark, I was scared, I didn't know what to say. Then a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my dearly loved son, listen to him. Where have we already heard heard those words in Mark's gospel? At Jesus. Just check you're alive. Where have we heard those words before in Mark's gospel? Yeah. Anyone think it's an accident that the words get repeated? No? Good. Just checking. Still alive. Good. Suddenly when they looked around... Moses and Elijah were gone, and they saw only Jesus with them. As they went back down the mountain, he told them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept it to themselves, but they often asked each other what he meant by rising from the dead. Then they asked him, why do the teachers of religious law insist that Elijah must return before the Messiah comes? Jesus responded, Elijah is indeed coming first to get everything ready. Yet why did the scriptures say that the Son of Man must suffer greatly and be treated with utter contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they chose to abuse him just as the scriptures predicted. So it's a top of the mountain experience. And the clue to understanding the second half of Mark 
is the use of the term son of man. Many of us will know that it comes directly and relates directly to a prophet called Daniel, who writes in the Old Testament part of our Bibles, doesn't he? And looks forward to the coming of the Messiah, God's saviour, and uses this title, this idiomatic title, by which I mean that it expresses, uh, it's a title that expresses nature. It is a title that expresses purpose. Jesus is going to fulfill for all of humanity something incredible. And so it relates to Daniel. But Jesus, when he uses the title Son of Man, he also takes the prophecies of Isaiah as well about a suffering servant. And so the title Son of Man, which Jesus uses for himself, capital M, not small m, if the Jehovah's Witnesses knock on your door or the Mormons knock on your door this afternoon. He takes this as a title because it wraps up both Daniel and Isaiah. It wraps up together the glory of God, the might and majesty of God with the reality of the suffering servant, the one who will give his life for all. You see, this is the journey that they're going to be going on for the whole of the, the second half of Mark. A journey of trying to hold these two things together in their heads. The glory of God, the might and majesty of God, the Messiah, the saviour of the world having come. And yet he's walking to the cross, to humiliation and to death. He's transformed before their eyes on this mountain. It's difficult to say exactly what, what's meant, but he's transformed. And the word is, is quite akin to a caterpillar into a butterfly. That kind of transformation, the fullness of, of something, the beauty of something is seen. The overarching impression, one commentator says, is of unearthly purity. The, the dazzling white nature of Jesus as he uh, appears before him again connects to Daniel's prophecy of the Son of Man coming dressed in dazzling white. One of the other gospel writers, uh, Matthew, speaks about his glorious presence being revealed to them. Unearthly purity. And two figures appear, there's, there's Moses and Elijah, both directly connected with, uh, with the Jewish expectations about the Messiah, about the saviour of the world. Moses, founder of the, the Jewish religion, and Elijah, the prophet Malachi has said, will come and prepare the way for the Messiah. And it, it's very clear, is if you know your Bibles, that the scene as Mark paints it and as the gospel writers paint it echoes back to Moses on Mount Sinai. When Moses goes to the top of the mountain, doesn't he? Exodus 34, and meets with God. And he, he's given a sight of the glory of God. And, and his face is so radiant afterwards, shines so radiantly afterwards, that when he goes back down to the people, they can only just glimpse him for a second and he has to veil his face. It's why actually Peter very probably says, well, let's build three shelters 
I mean, he's frightened, he doesn't know what else to say, so he grabbles for the first, first thing. But probably in his mind is this connection going on. You know, the Lord, when the glory of the Lord was seen in the Old Testament, in the, in the meeting tent, the place of meeting, the presence of God, the glory of God came and Moses goes into the meeting tent, doesn't he, in the wilderness. That shelter was where God resided. And so Peter probably has in mind, well, let's do the same again, but this time three. What Peter doesn't know and doesn't realise yet fully is that the glory of God is present. No longer going to rest in a, a tent, but it rests in the body of Jesus Christ. The full glory of God is in him. And then there's that voice. This is my beloved son, listen to him. Just as at his baptism, the father bears witness from heaven to the son. Unearthly purity. The glory of God revealed as being fully present in Jesus. Of course, we realise, don't we, that it is directly addressing the question about who is Jesus. It's addressing the question of identity fully and completely to reveal him in his glory. It validates his message. It validates his teaching. It validates the journey that they're going to go on together to the cross. Moses and the people of Israel in the Old Testament in the wilderness needed a, a glimpse of God's glory in order to sustain them. They needed the presence of God to sustain them through the wilderness and into the promised land. And Jesus' disciples need to see Jesus in his glory as they journey towards the cross. As Paul writes, the cross is a stumbling block, isn't it? It's, it's foolishness. It's foolishness. And yet it is absolutely what we believe. And so those disciples and we need to hear and have a sense of experiencing this validation. Here's a little summary slide, if you like, of the kind of reasons for the transfiguration. Can we put that up? It reveals Jesus in his full glory. It bears witness to him and his message. It sets the scene for the second half of Mark's gospel, the journey to the cross. And messianic expectations, expectations about the saviour are fulfilled and they're redefined. But I want to go back to glory in the dirt. It's that question. Who do you say that I am? That's the turning point in Mark's gospel. What does it mean to look into the eyes of Jesus? Hudson, if we can just put that up. What does it mean to look into the eyes of Jesus? Who do you say that I am? I used to think that Jesus was probably a bit cross with me the whole time, really. 
bit disappointed in me the whole time, really. A bit sad about me, really. I kind of felt that when I got to heaven, when I got to be with Jesus in all his glory, I've always believed that that's what would happen. But I kind of thought he'd sort of, you know, it'd be a bit like a lot of my school reports. Could have done better. And uh, that, you know, and I feel quite emotional as I say it because it's the truth. It's so much of who I am trying to be now to move away from that, that wrong picture, that wrong sense of my Jesus and my Father in heaven. I used to think he'd sort of say, okay, Andrew, you're in because I died on the cross for you, but I've got this place over here, you know, just round the back. <laughs> but that's not true. That's not true. It is, by the way, true that lead pastors will not have a special place because they're lead pastors. It is true that those who play the hidden roles in the life of our church will be exalted appropriately and rightly in heaven. I fully expect that lead pastors will be the bottom of the pack, if I could put it in those terms. But life's not a tightrope. Life is this wonderful, amazing, really quite dirty adventure. And God's glory is revealed in that dirt. It's been revealed to me in that dirt. I stood in a new wine tent some years ago. And in the middle of worship, God took me chapter by chapter through the whole of my life. It was the most amazing experience I've ever had in my life of God. He, he just reminded me, and, and, and it was a bit like Back to the Future. Because at the time, in each of these little chapters, I wasn't fully aware of what God was doing. I had all kinds of conversations you know, that I'd had with God about where were you? I couldn't see you then. What were you doing? Why did this, you know... And he just revealed to me, chapter by chapter. And actually, it finished my little vision, and I don't claim it as a John-like vision, but it, it finished with me actually having a sense of walking very up the steps into heaven. And the light was so bright and so amazing. And there were, the angels were singing. And I know that's the truth for every single one of us. I know, I know you and I might feel like we're in this time car sometimes, traveling around, zipping around, and you know we're back here, and we keep having these space-time continuum, whatever it's called, I can't remember, paradoxes. You kind of run into yourself again. See, Peter wanted to preserve the experience on that mountaintop, didn't he, in his humanity, and there's a danger in that, isn't there? There's a danger that I might want to just live out of that experience I had at New Wine Festival a few years ago. But those experiences are temporary. Even Moses' glory, a glimpse of Jesus on the mountain Sinai, was a, it faded. But in Jesus, it doesn't fade, does it? In the presence of Jesus, the glory of God, the purity of God, the fullness of everything that he is for us, the love of God for us is revealed and never fades because it walks through the dirt, the reality of life, the dusty feet walking in the animal mess. And it includes being spat at. And it includes being ridiculed. 
And it includes being whipped. And it includes being nailed to a cross. It includes it all. Blood, sweat and tears. I love this one-line summary of the gospel. God made it. We broke it. Jesus fixes it. You can't define the glory of God in the same way as uh, an object. You know, the glory of God is not like a car. It's this color, it's that shape, it's got that many wheels, that many doors. The glory of God is like the love that you feel for your closest family and friends. The glory of God is like the beauty of creation. You can never completely define it. You can never grab it. You can't actually bottle it. You can't actually define it in the ways that sometimes as human beings we want to. But you can see it and know it and experience it and live it and love it and enjoy it. And sometimes it's glimpses. And sometimes it's like on the top of a mountain. It's in the dirt. It's in the reality of life that the glory of God is revealed to us in Jesus by the power of his Holy Spirit at work in us. It's revealed as we wash other people's feet. It's revealed as we pick someone up from the ground and welcome them. It's revealed in the things of Jesus. Break my heart for what breaks yours. Whenever our hearts are broken, actually for ourselves and we turn to God, whenever our hearts are broken for others and we turn to God, when we feel love and mercy, the glory of God is revealed to us. I could give you a long list of situations in my life, bits of the story that I still can't explain. I could tell you bits about our story as a church family right now that I can't fully explain. You'll have read about our finances at the moment. There's no crisis, but we're definitely being reshaped in a serious way. But in all of the story, in all of its different chapters, the question is listening and looking for Jesus, trusting that he is the one who picks us up and walks forward with us. It's so easy to try and turn Jesus, turn God into someone made in our image. This is what you should do, God. But that's not the way it works. If you're able to, would you like to stand?